welcome to the Penn Science Policy and Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Camille Testard, and I am your host today on the show. Here we endeavor to explore the work and lives of scientists, the history of knowledge, what is left to discover, and why it all matters. And I would like to introduce my guest today, Dr. Etienne Benson. So Dr. Benson is a historian of science at the University of Pennsylvania. He earned his bachelor's degree at Harvard in cognitive neuroscience, actually. His master's at Stanford and his PhD from MIT in history and anthropology of science and technology. Today, his work focuses on the history of environmental sciences, environmentalism, and human-animal relationships in the 19th and 20th centuries. Environmental sciences is an interdisciplinary field which seeks to understand the environment and find solutions to environmental problems. It integrates traditional science disciplines such as biology, ecology, geology, and chemistry with issues such as environmental ethics and social issues. Dr. Benson studies how our concern for the environment emerged and how the technological, economical, and political context influenced the emerges and practice of environmental sciences. His first book, published in 2011, Wired Wilderness, Technologies of Tracking and the Making of Modern Wildlife, showed how the use of electronic surveillance technologies to study and manage wildlife in the United States since the 1960s challenged the widespread understanding of wilderness. He has also published academic studies about animal history, endangered species protection, movement ecology, and other subjects. He's currently pursuing two additional book-length projects, one tracing the history of environmental ideas and environmentalism since the late 18th century, the other exploring the role of the built landscape in generating ideas of human-animal difference. With all of that said, thank you, Dr. Benson, for being on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So I would like to start by asking you a very general question about the importance and relevance of science history as a field. So what is science history and why is it important that we study it? Yeah, the history of science, I think, is a field that has a lot of diversity within it. There's a lot of different ways to approach it. Some historians of science are interested in how scientific ideas and theories change over time, very much focused on the practices of scientists themselves. Mm -hmm. Some historians of science are much more interested in the instruments than they are in the theories, right? So you might have historians of science who are focused very much on the everyday practices of the laboratory or of field work. And then there are historians of science who want to know how science interacts with the rest of society. So why do certain kinds of scientific research get funded? Why do certain kinds of scientific disciplines emerge and become the focus of an enormous amount of attention? And I think you can look at some recent examples, like neuroscience, for instance, a field that has boomed in recent years. Right? You can ask, why is that? You know, what are the, the social forces driving that? And then there are historians of science who focus mainly on how and why science has an impact on, on the rest of society. So there you might look at technological applications of scientific findings, you might look at scientists as experts advising government officials or testifying as experts in court cases, um, being the, the Neil deGrasse Tyson, right, the figure, the public figure who can intervene on Twitter 
to explain certain kinds of things or to correct public figures when they mm -hmm. maybe um, endorse uh, views that, that the scientific community doesn't endorse. Right? So you can, there's a lot of different ways to do the history of, of science that are focused on what scientists do, how they produce reliable knowledge, and then why it is that society as a whole supports or doesn't support certain kinds of science, and then how science then goes on to reshape you know, other parts of society. You can't really be a, an educated user and consumer or maybe even producer of that kind of scientific knowledge unless you have some sense of the historical trajectory that's made certain kinds of knowledge production mm -hmm. seem authoritative and be authoritative. And to also know how a scientific finding or a scientific expert fits into the way or maybe changes the way that society is working. Just discovering something in your laboratory is not enough to make mm -hmm. a difference. Yes. Right? And I think the history of science helps us understand what the rest is beyond just that process of discovery. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a very, very important point. Uh, I really feel like even in, in the way that we teach science today, um, there really is a focus on you know, current knowledge, facts, uh, what do we know now, and yes, also a focus on you know, the scientific method and how you get to a fact, but not so much how did we even start asking those questions and why were those questions important at that time and made us look into it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're right with the example of neuroscience. It's, it's crazy now, the, the amount of funding, the amount of general public interest in that field, which was really not the case like 40 years ago. And now if you look at Society for Neuroscience, which is the organization mm -hmm. of all neuroscientific uh, researchers, it's 30,000 people reuniting in, in one conference. It's the biggest science conference ever, and that's a, it's a, yeah, a great indication of, of general interest for it. Thing you, you mentioned, you know, the idea that um, we need to know more than maybe just the, the scientific method in order to produce knowledge that actually has an impact and to understand why science develops the way it does. You know, I think one of the lessons of the history of science that's emerged over the past three or four decades um, is that the, the scientific method is something that a lot of you know, students will learn at some point in a, a high school science class you know, some process of formulating a, a hypothesis and testing it and learning about experimental controls and that sort of thing. And one of the things that historians of science have found is that when you actually go in and look at what scientists do, there is no one scientific method. There is maybe in general a scientific ethos, a general sense of the importance of empirical 
um, evidence, the importance of some kind of logical process, the importance of being open to counter argument. Right? These things are characteristics of a general area that we call science. Mm -hmm. But when you look at specific scientists and what they do to produce knowledge, what you see is that from time to time, and right, if you look from the late 18th, 19th century, 20th century, different decades within the 20th century, even within a single field, you'll see shifts in actually how science is practiced. Practiced, And that doesn't just mean shifts in instrumentation, so like the instruments get better and better, or, um, the models get more and more refined or more complex, but you also see that the kinds of models that are important change over time, the kinds of instruments that are important change over time, the kinds of evidence that's seen as legitimate changes mm -hmm. over time. And I think there's an important lesson there, which is not just a lesson about how we've gotten better, better and better over time, but which is it's a lesson about how the, the criteria for what counts as legitimate evidence and good argument shift over time and across fields. And they, they shift, and it makes sense that they would shift, right? If you, if you want to explain and understand climate change, the tools you need and the kinds of arguments and the kinds of models and the kinds of evidence are very different from the kinds of models and evidence and tools that you need to understand how a neuron works. Right. right. And so it's no surprise that we'd find really real differences. And I think I think this also has some, I would hope that, the, that this also has maybe some meaning for practicing scientists, because I think a, a practicing scientist is always confronted with the challenge of coming up with new ways of understanding some phenomenon. We can go back to Thomas Kuhn and we can recognize that there are situations in which scientists develop new prototypes for how to go about exploring a problem and then they just run that kind of experiment over and over again. Many Thomas changing. Kuhn being, can you Thomas, yeah, so Thomas, <laughs> Thomas, Thomas Kuhn, Kuhn was the author of a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in which he introduced the concept of the paradigm shift. And for Kuhn, and this was in the, in the 1960s, the, the idea was um, scientists, uh, you, as you look at the history of, of science, you can see dramatic shifts, almost gestalt shifts in how scientists approach and understand the world and the kinds of tools and theories that they use. So that, um, you know, a classical example would be Einstein's uh, idea of relativity, which was a, a dramatic shift from Newtonian physics. Mm -hmm. And Kuhn argued that scientists tend to do something what he, that he called normal science. And normal science is when you have an established set of tools, an established set of questions, an established set of theories, and you're trying to refine those. So you can do experiments that will, for instance, take a particular physical constant and get more and more detailed, mm -hmm. right? More and more digits onto the end of that right. constant. Right, the reductionist approach yeah. to get to. Or, or even something like the standard model in physics, mm -hmm. right? Where you have a certain kind of, uh, kind of classification of, of basic particles and you're trying to fill out that table, fill out that map and, and identify the properties of each of those elements. You could call that a kind of like normal science in, in Kuhnian terms. Mm -hmm. um, but then at some point, according to Kuhn's argument, the anomalies accumulate, there's more and more evidence that doesn't quite fit into that model. Maybe the aims of scientists in that field change, the kinds of questions they want to answer start to shift. And then somebody proposes a new prototype, solves the problem in a new way with maybe an entirely different model, right? So not Newtonian mechanics, but Einstein's, you know, kind of relativity or quantum mechanics. And then the whole field shifts. And so I think, 
you know, practicing scientists are continually facing the challenge of sometimes, you know, doing that kind of normal science where you're, you're running another experiment, you know, with just a slightly different experimental setup or mm-hmm. you're uh, using a, a different drug and seeing if that other drug has the same effect as the previous drug that you were testing, mm-hmm. right, where you're just tweaking the parameters a little bit to see what you can find out. Um, but I think scientists are also continually trying to invent new ways to find out something about the world, like entirely new ways, right? Mm-hmm. To think maybe a different kind of, an entirely different kind of evidence, or maybe even a different kind of argument, right? Maybe people have been making certain kinds of arguments for a long time, and then mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to make a different kind of argument. And probably a lot of people in the field are going to look at that argument and say, that isn't even neuroscience, or that isn't even physics. Right, right? absolutely. But then after a while, people say, actually, that's really productive. You know, and then an entirely new field or a new subfield kind of emerges around a whole new way of asking questions. And I think by looking at the history of science, you can see that science isn't just about making an instrument that can measure something down to like parts per billion instead of just parts per million. Right? Mm-hmm. It's about actually inventing new kinds of questions that can be posed. And I think the history can be in, have both a, an instructive and also maybe an inspiring. Definitely. Um, I had the luck of um, having a mentor who is now in the 70s. So he has actually was trained by the founders of neuroscience. He was trained by Donald Hebb and Brenda Milner, who were cognitive neuroscientists who really participated in the in the, the building, the building blocks of what is today cognitive neuroscience. And so whenever I would ask him a question, it would be a three hour long answer because he was like, in the 1960s, when we started to ask that cognitive neuroscience was not even a terminology then. Yeah. But then that would really make me understand why are we here now and what did we sort of forget along the way as well. podcast, I would really like my listeners to realize that researchers and professors are people. (laughs) So I would like to uh, ask you a little bit about your life history and how did you even get interested in uh, in history of science? Yeah, as a historian of science who focuses a lot on how other people get interested in the fields that they study, I think it's important to know to situate people, right? To understand where their where their motivation comes from and their perspective comes from. So, for me, uh, I think I took a path which a lot of historians of science have taken. I think, which is that I I started off enthusiastic about science, and of course, enthusiastic about a lot of other things as well. I think when I first went to university, I I was imagined myself either studying French literature or studying uh, computer science. <laughs> and I ended up with cognitive neuroscience, which I think is not exactly between those two. But um, <laughs> And 
and you know, out of just a deep fascination with the kinds of discoveries that were becoming possible at that time, which was the um, late 1990s with functional magnetic resonance imaging, and I just truly deeply excited about about the the it, what seemed to be the promise for uh, new kinds of insights into the, the working of the mind, the working of the brain, and um, and I got involved in that. Got uh, had a had a wonderful experience of uh, a kind of research mentor working at uh, with a neuroscientist. And got just really excited about doing science, um, and and went on to graduate school. And then somehow, in the process of, of being at graduate school, realized that actually, some of the questions which I think you answered at the beginning about the the broader context of science and where the questions come from, were actually in some ways more interesting to me than the day to day practice of of running the experiments mm -hmm. and analyzing the data. In particular, we were doing brain imaging studies of psychological disorders, drug addiction, um, emotional memory. Mm -hmm. And these are fascinating subjects. And I think since the time that I was involved, there have been amazing kinds of discoveries and advances in the way this, those are studied. Um, but at the time, I started to realize, or to think and to wonder, why do we have these tools? Where did they come from? Why are we asking these questions? Why do we think that a picture of blood flow in the brain can tell us something about the mind or about emotions. And these questions started to preoccupy me in a way that the day-to-day -day practice of, of um, running subjects through these experiments was not. And so um, at the time, I wasn't quite sure where, where to go with that. And I thought maybe science writing or science journalism was a path. Mm -hmm. And so I did a, a kind of summer-long fellowship, um, actually working at Popular Science Magazine, which is where I ended up being assigned with this, uh, this sort of science communication fellowship that I got. And, uh, okay. and and spent a couple of years writing, you know, after that, writing about science for magazines, some more popular uh, venues. And that was really exciting because I got to talk to some of my scientific heroes in neuroscience and psychology. I got to call them up and ask them questions about their latest studies. Right. Um, and that was a lot of fun and really interesting. And then, but at some point I also realized with that that I, I wanted to be able to slow down a little bit, right? The, the, the business of science journalism is often a very fast-paced one. A new study comes out, you have a day or two to call people up and find out uh, the most, their reactions to that study or their interpretations of it, and then you publish your 500 words, and then you move on to the next thing. And I think there are some journalists who are able to um, develop a kind of, over, over the years, a kind of deep understanding of whatever fields that they're covering. Um, but I wanted to be able to slow down a little bit you know, to do a deeper historical background, to think more, maybe more slowly, <laughs> more carefully about some of the philosophical and social issues at stake in this research. And I discovered the field of science and technology studies at that time. Yeah. Before going on to a PhD. Yeah. Again. And then I applied to PhD programs, ended up getting into this interdisciplinary program at MIT in history, anthropology, and science and technology studies. Um, yeah. And they received a kind of wonderful interdisciplinary training with methods from from each of those fields, interesting. Um, and then and uh, and then re realized if I you know one I guess one last important twist is that I had spent so much time thinking about neuroscience in the mind, and uh, that I was ready to think about something new. <laughs> so, so that's where environmentalism comes. Yeah, and this was okay. a time where it you know personally became very important to me to think about um, environmental issues and also kind of animal welfare issues. And so I decided to study that as, as my focus. And that's where my first book project came out, thinking about these wildlife tracking technologies that were used okay. 
to protect certain wildlife populations and to define certain wilderness areas as being deserving of protection, um, but which themselves also involved a lot of manipulation and intervention into the, into the lives of animals. And so I wanted to understand how that had come about and what kind of impact it had. about your book, Wild Wilderness, I'll keep it that short yeah. version. In that book, you describe how animal tracking and information technologies have revolutionized the study of animal behavior and conservation practices. And before we talk more about this, I'd like to make you listen to a little audio I've selected and see your reaction to it. They decided there should be a system where everyone, well, men, at least, could have an equal say in decision-making, and they named their new system Democratia, which translates to power of the people. Mm, right on. This has, for the most part, been regarded as a step in the right direction, getting together, coming to a decision with equal voices regardless of our position in society. It's what separates us from monkeys. I'm totally kidding. Monkeys do it too, as observed by researchers from the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. The researchers tracked the movements of a troop of olive baboons in Kenya and found that every member of the troop had an equal say in where they all went. Now, this was surprising because olive baboons have a strong social hierarchy and dominant members get choice picks of food or mates over their subordinates. But when it comes to trekking across the savanna, olive baboons move more like a school of fish or a flock of birds. In other words, no dominant members of the troop had a disproportionate say on where the entire gang went. When two monkeys started moving in different directions, the rest of the troop would decide which to follow and eventually the whole group would go with the decision of the majority. And if the two initiators picked directions that were similar, the group would choose a path that split that difference. They compromised. Americans are more stubborn than baboons. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this study that came out about a year ago. Um, yeah. Okay, I'll tell you a little bit more about it. So for the longest time, we thought that group movement in baboons were led by the alpha male or individuals who are really high in the hierarchy. And that came from our own personal, with our own personal observational biases. Uh, and because the alpha male has such an impact on social structure and dynamics, on the day-to-day -day or like hour-to-hour -hour basis, we thought, well, movement must also be led by the alpha male. And then this group of researchers had the idea to put GPS collars on uh, 25 members of a 100-member troop and follow them for three weeks with, I think, one, anyway, one data point per second or per minute. And then they realized that it wasn't the alpha male who was mm -hmm. leading the troop. It was actually a democratic process or democratic-like process. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to have your, your reaction on this in case you had heard about it, because that actually was a study that was mind-blowing to me. I was like, wow, this is how, you know, with your biased point of view, you can make 
animals say whatever you want them to say, but turns out if you look on in an unbiased manner using information technologies, it's a whole different picture that you're looking mm -hmm. at. Mm -hmm. So now coming back to your yeah. to your book, and uh, do you have any comment on this? That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm not really f I'm not familiar with that that study, but it's a really interesting example of how changing a research method can shift your perspective, right? And um, I mean, I guess what you know for my book, I was. Um, for the book project, I was interested in the early days of this kind of electronic tracking of, of wildlife radio tracking, which was the first very earliest experiments uh, were done in the late 50s. The first kind of effective studies were done in the early 60s. Had a lot to do with the technological developments of the time that were not connected to wildlife biology or ecology. Yeah, I was going to yeah. ask, what technologies are we talking about and how did ethologists even, you know, put their hands on these kinds of technologies? Yeah. So, you know, there's a long history of people observing animals and studying migration and there have been tools to do that. There have been things like uh, bands or, or rings that are used to study bird migration, tags of various kinds. But there are limits to those, right? You can't easily follow a migrating bird. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you can't even all that, even with an animal that doesn't move that far, it's very difficult to have a continuous record of that animal's movement because it's just hard to live with animals in the field for a long time, especially animals that move mostly at night. It's very difficult to follow them. And as a somebody who does primatology, you know, there have been real technical challenges in things like following uh, chimpanzee groups around. And, and chimpanzees are not migrating birds. They don't, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> they still, can still be very, very challenging to, to follow them. And so, um, yeah, so people have, have come up with various techniques over time to do that. And what happened in the 1950s and 60s is that one very basic technological change happened, which was that transistors became widely available. And this made it possible to develop energy efficient and very light, comparatively lightweight radio transmitters. So along with kind of slightly improved battery technology, it made it possible to strap a radio transmitter onto an animal. If you had the, the frequency at which that radio signal was being transmitted, you could have a receiver tuned to that frequency and through triangulation you could locate that animal. And that made a huge difference for a lot of different kinds of studies, even studies of animals that don't move great distances. It meant that you could go into the field find an animal, put this radio transmitter on it, go home, come back the next day, or come back two weeks later, or maybe even come back a year later if the transmitter has a big enough battery, and find that same animal again. who people like Nico Tinbergen or Conrad Lawrence or 
a number of others, uh, Julian Huxley, others in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Frank Fraser Darling, uh, a British a researcher who, who studied deer, who had you know gone out into the field and basically lived with animals uh, for for days or weeks or, or months. Um, it required an enormous amount of devotion and persistence and the tolerance of uncomfortable conditions, which you know ethologists still often have to, to deal with. Um, but it all of a sudden made it possible to take these techniques of intensive observation and generalize them to an enormous range of, of animals. Um, and to make it possible with m less effort to get much, much more data on movements. And so that was one of the things I wanted to understand is when you, when you shift the technology in this way, make it possible to relocate an animal at a distance over and over again and know that it's the same animal, what kinds of questions can you ask that you couldn't before? And there were some surprises that came out very early on. And if I'll just, if I just describe one of them. Please, yeah. yeah um, the, uh, so some of the early pioneers in this technique in the United States were twin brothers, um, Frank and John Craighead, who worked with grizzly bears mainly, also mountain lions, but mainly, mainly grizzly bears, mainly in the Rockies, uh, Yellowstone National Park and, and the area around there. And until their studies, many people believed that their grizzlies had been exterminated in most of the um, continental United States. They were still in Alaska, parts of the Rockies, parts of Canada, but relatively small populations remaining, highly endangered. Most people thought that these grizzly bears that one found in Yellowstone National Park, for instance, were confined to the park, that they did not stray beyond the park's borders. And that shaped an understanding of their biology, so it suggested that it had fairly constrained ranges, mm -hmm. and that they were highly likely to avoid areas of human habitation. And it also shaped policy, because it meant that if you protected that park, you were protecting that population. This was also a product of the kind of science that was done. So when the Craigheads wanted to study grizzly bears, they went to Yellowstone, and they right. looked for grizzly bears in Yellowstone. What they found out once they started tracking these, these bears with, with radio collars, and it made sense that they were tracking bears with radio collars because even with miniaturization, the early radio tags were weighed uh, 10 pounds, 15 pounds. They were, oh, wow. they were big devices at the beginning. Mm. Um, eventually they got down to a gram or, or less, but at the beginning they were quite big. And what they found was that these bears were actually going often beyond the park, out into neighboring communities, and that in fact one of the major sources of mortality of these bears was conflicts with humans that were happening outside the park borders. And that had sort of fallen out off the radar before that. And it was really the technology of tracking that made it clear that even if the bear spends 90 or 95% of his or her time within the park, that 5% of the time spent foraging outside of the park was actually having a huge impact on the, on the health of the population as a whole. So you can start to see just, I mean, that's just one kind of concrete example of how once the technology shifts, sort of certain new things come to light, certain things come to the surface that in theory could have been detected before. Somebody could have spent time looking at those neighboring communities, but they just didn't. Yeah, just they didn't, didn't think of it. They didn't think of it, and the technology suddenly made it impossible to ignore. And I think maybe there's some resonance there with the story of baboons. What kind of policy changes happened as a result of that? Well, one of the most direct policy uh, change was increasing protections for those bears and for the habitats that they depended on outside of the national park itself. So for the, the Craigheads became advocates for what they called the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. The, their idea with, in proposing and advocating that was 
a kind of fortress model of the national park where you only protect, you put up big walls around it. I mean, metaphorical walls around the park and you focus all of your energy on maintaining habitat and protecting populations within the park. They concluded that that was not going to succeed, that you could never have a park, at least under conditions of kind of the, the modern United States, you could never have a park big enough that would mm. protect all of the elements that, and populations that were essential to that, that, the biology of that park. And that meant that you needed to go beyond the park. You needed to start looking at nearby national forests and ranch land, um, privately held land, uh, highways and, and towns and neighboring areas, and start to think, how do we integrate all of those other areas that are not strictly protected areas? How do we integrate those into an overall strategy for protecting the, the viability of this, this population? I'm still really astonished by how these technologies are revolutionizing our understanding of animal behavior. We're actually being able to track birds and migration and whale migration. And mm. I don't know if you saw this book, Where the Animals Go, which came out a year or two ago. It's a book of maps, right, of, of animal movement yeah. around the world. Yeah. yeah, by James Cheshire and Oliver Uberti. Yeah. If you don't have it, I really recommend I think that you it's, do. Because it's either here on my shelves or at <laughs> on my shelves. So, yeah, I do Because have that it's book. such a beautiful book. Yeah. It's really a beautiful piece where it's a, a guy from the National Geographic used to analyzing big data and a, a scientist, I think a movement ecologist, who teamed up to get data from a whole bunch of groups and build this collection of stories that we were able to make using new technology, new tracking technology. I don't know if you have anything to comment on that. Yeah, and I guess I have two thoughts. So one is, as, as I said, the, the earliest days of radio tracking date back to the 50s, 60s. It's in some sense, the idea that you could electronically track an animal is at this point more than half century old, mm -hmm. 70 years old maybe. Um, but there have been major changes recently. And I would say the big changes really started to happen in the 1990s, and we're starting now to see some of the, the payoff, scientific payoff of those changes. One change was the development of very highly miniaturized um, tags. So tags that were had very efficient transmitters and very powerful batteries and highly miniaturized electronic Kind of control systems that made it possible to make tags that were small enough that you could even put them on large in insects, right? So there have been some studies mm. on, of bumblebees and, you I know, know. Yeah, very, you know, so mi very tiny tags. 
that would allow individuals to be identified and, and tracked. Another change that happened in the 1990s was the kind of maturation of um, satellite-based tracking systems. So there had been, from the 1970s, systems to track the locations of, of animals, but they had been large tags, so effectively only usable at the beginning for things like, for animals like uh, whales, elephants, you know, other animals that could carry a 10-pound or a 15-pound tag. By the 1990s, those systems had also been highly miniaturized to the point where they could be used on birds, and they've been more and more miniaturized since then. And in fact, there's a project based out of um, Max Planck Institute for Ornithology in Germany that's developing a system called Icarus, which will make it possible to track even smaller animals by satellite. And then the third major change, so miniaturization, satellite tracking, and the internet. Mm. And these things together, internet making it possible to communicate very rapidly the, um, the tracking data and also to develop um, collective databases of tracking data, data um, have made it now possible to have a global view of the movements of animals of a wide range of sizes and behaviors, including uh, fish, for instance, ocean fish that, that never surface. You can use pop-up tags that track their location, pop up, transmit their data to satellite, and then it can be downloaded and used to reconstruct those animals' movements. Um, we now have a, a much, just a, a quantitatively much more detailed and qualitatively kind of, I think, different um, ability to see global patterns of animal movement and to c compare across scales and across species and across ecosystems. And there have been some projects, like there's a project called MoveBank, which is a, a kind of shared database where scientists who do tracking studies using uh, a variety of different technologies can, can submit their movement data, their tracking data, to a common database. And all of these, yeah, all of these systems, I think, are are making it possible to get a global view, and at the very same time, and I think this is not a paradox. This is this is instead it's a kind of complementary function of these technologies. Is that at the very same time that we're getting a global global view, we're also getting these individualized views where we can, as you said, we can follow an individual animal's life story from minute to minute in some cases. And even in some cases, have not only the, the movement data, but also some data about the surrounding environment and the conditions and choices that that individual is facing or choices that that individual is making. We can now start to reconstruct this life path of an animal over the course of years or, or decades even. Um, and, and I think that is, of course, a remarkable scientific tool. And I think you can see in some of the science, scientific models that Increasingly, those models are kind of individual agent-based models, where right. it's which the individual animal making a decision, and then you accumulate dozens or thousands of those animals making individual decisions and start to get a sense of what the population as a whole is doing. The same way these baboons, right, are each of them making their own movements and then collectively end up going in one direction. And it's also giving us a chance to to identify with those animals and maybe to even empath empathize with those animals in a new way. And I think some, some scientists and some scientific groups have been really good at capitalizing on that, saying, hey, we're studying this population, but within this population there are individuals, and we're going to show you the life of one of those individuals, and we're going to give you a sense of the challenges that they face, whether it's finding food, dealing with weather, uh, dealing with the consequences of climate change, or facing you know, pollution, you know, this, these birds that are feeding in these fields at this time of year exposed to these pesticides. Right. You can really start to get a sense of, oh, this is what it's like. And of course, there's limits to how much we can actually understand what it's like to be a different species. But I think you can at least have start to see some points of 
a resonance or some opportunities for empathy to say, oh, that's what it would be like to be an animal like this. That's what it would be like to date it from a day to day, the kinds of challenges that this particular kind of animal faces. Um, mm. And I think that's really remarkable. Yeah, uh, it is remarkable. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's a, a whole new field now called computational ethology that's emerging, where we're actually using machine vision tools to automatically track animals, but really at the like postural level. I'm able to track each one of your fingers or position, the joint angle, everything, so that now we're looking at, be at a behavior in a really more quantified manner, and that is very important in neuroscience, for example, where if we want to start studying more ethologically relevant behaviors, we need ways to measure these behaviors in an untethered environment. So another step where we're using new information, new, new tools um, to understand better behavior and the relationship between the brain and behavior. N'existe pas sans son contraire Qui lui semble facile à trouver Le bonheur n'existe que pour plaire Je le veux Enfin je commence à douter D'en avoir vraiment rêvé Et si non vie parfois je me sens Obligée Le spleen n'est plus à la mode C'est pas compliqué d'être heureux Le spleen n'est plus à la mode C'est pas compliqué Tout, il faudrait tout oublier N'existe pas sans son contraire Une jeunesse pleine de sentiments L'ennui est inconditionnel Je peux ressentir le malaise des gens qui dansent Essaye d'oublier que tu es seul Vieux souvenir comme la DSL Et si tout le monde t'a délaissé Ça s'est passé après les sols Il faudrait tout oublier Pour y croire Il faudrait tout oublier On joue Mais là j'ai trop joué I will finish with one last question that I would like to ask all of my interviewees. The Penn Science Policy and Diplomacy Group is a student-led organization, and our first listeners will probably be students. So do you have any advice to give to soon-to-become or current graduate students? That's a tough, <laughs> that is a tough question. Um, and it makes me think both on my own experience as a graduate student and also on the experience of graduate students that I have worked with. And um, for me, one of the things that graduate school is about, both was for myself as a graduate student, and I hope and I think also is for graduate students that I've had the privilege to work with, is an opportunity to 
learn a set of skills to get to know how a community of scientists or scholars in a particular domain understand their work, how they define what counts as good science or good scholarship. And it's also this moment of really taking ownership of your own role as a knowledge producer. And I think that's the, that's the most anxiety provoking part and also the most exciting part about being a graduate student is trying to make that transition from being somebody who's absorbing and trying to master a body of knowledge to somebody who can see how all of the people who have gone before you have failed to see something, mm-hmm. <laughs> something important, <laughs> something new. And then finding like the courage to say, I'm going to do that new thing. And oftentimes this is a long process. This is a process that starts possibly already as an, as an undergraduate and then develops through graduate school and then continues as a postdoc and even into, you know, for those who end up pursuing a career in academia, junior professor. This slow process of trying to figure out what the standards of the field are and then figure out how those standards have constrained what can be known and to figure out the little ways you might extend the envelope a little bit, right, or break out of those chains a little bit. And it's very, very tricky because it is, we live in a world that is so full of information and so changing so rapidly where every day new sets of studies come out, new techniques, new, new innovations. It can feel almost impossible just to keep up with that and somehow to, to figure out how to balance that, that, that the, being the good student right, who, who knows how to learn from everything that's happening and then also taking that, that, giving yourself the license to also be a bad student who says, no, this is what my teachers have told me to do and this is not what I'm going to do. Right? I'm going to do something different. And that something different may actually open up a whole new path. And so I don't think there's any advice here. <laughs> no, I think you, but, <laughs> you just gave a, a whole bunch of advice right there. <laughs> but, but for me, this is, like, this is a challenge and one that I still face, right? is how to, how to be, be faithful to the, the necessary discipline that is required to, to produce new knowledge and to build on what's gone before and also be willing to take those risks, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Benson. Thank you.